0: Welcome to Real History, the podcast where we discuss media of various types or different ways of telling stories uh, that come from history, and we pick them apart for the fun of it on a basis (laughs) of history. (laughs) We have now been uh, airing for approximately—is it two seasons, Jenna? We've done now. Yes, two seasons under our belt. This is hopefully, if it goes out on time, the debut (laughs) episode of the third season, and we are recording it just ahead of Christmas in England in twenty twenty and it's been a tumultuous year but we will not be talking about that in particular today, we are instead going to do something a bit different, we are in one of our specials where we get to interview a proper historian and talk about something a bit broader than any one film, we're going to look today at Christmas traditions and the notions that we will often find because there's a glut of Christmas movies there's a lot of discussion online at the moment about what constitutes a Christmas movie all the action nerds complaining about whether Die Hard is or isn't, I mean please not, doesn't need to be discussed again, uh, but instead you've got tons of lists and people saying what's going. What are we going to watch this year? And people talking about the traditions they form uh, for themselves, opposed to the traditions that they uh, inherit. And so we thought we'd find somebody we could talk to about all that, and hopefully enlighten us all a bit beyond just you know the things we think constitute Christmas. My name is Hugh David. I am your co-host and co-producer, as well as a teacher of history at secondary level, um, amongst many other things. Uh, With me is my co-host and co-producer, Jenna. Hi! And Jenna, tell the folks who you are and what you do. So
1: I am a master's student at Goldsmiths College, University of London, as a queer historian. Otherwise, I am a committee member for the Historical Association and now secretary for the History Society (laughs) At Goldsmiths, because apparently I can't say no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you, uh, I'll let you introduce our guest, Jenna, since you arranged for his to be a guest. Yes,
1: so as as the Wrightwood alumni, as an alumni of the University of Gloucestershire, I decided to... Br- yay! This is one of my old lecturers, uh, Dr <laughs> David Howe, so, who is lovely. Hello,
2: oh, <clears
0: so amazing. and laughs> would, would David tell the audience... Your, your background and, you know, who you are, basically, oh, yes.
2: OK, well, well and very good morning to you all, and a very, a very warm thanks for uh, inviting me along. So, yes, yeah, so my name is Dr David Howell. I'm a lecturer in history and intangible forms of heritage. My specialism is really focusing on those living forms of history. So traditions and cultural practice is a big part of what I do for my research and what I find find pretty interesting.
0: Fantastic. And so, I think the best place to start then is if 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 I uh, if something broad, uh, we we are sitting here, the three of us, all in England to, 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 for this conversation, and so no, but we have listeners all over. Someone's
1: Sorry? in Wales.
0: Sorry, we're That's in true. Britain. Yes. Good point. <laughs> in Britain, in in the currently still United Kingdom, um, <laughs> for, for, because I'm Ireland. I feel confident that somebody will be listening to this in the near future, and it won't be one anymore. <laughs> you know? But that so we all are here, and we are talking about tradition that has a very specific meaning, I think, for people's in Britain. Despite the fact we have you know multiple nations, cultural groups in the United Kingdom, I still feel like there's a certain homogeneity that is partially commercially driven. That sort of to somebody outside of Britain, oh, what do you think they do for Christmas? There'll be a fairly cliched list and I thought maybe we'd start with that and then break that down and see where the parts come from so for example Christian or not there is seems there is a tradition of decoration and trees and gift giving and spending a day stuffing your face with food if you can get it <laughs> and you know outside of modern traditions like the Queen's Speech and you know even more modern traditions like when we used to have a Doctor Who special which we don't anymore you know Let's go right back to kind of where do we get the tree from? Where do we get the idea that we should be gifting from? Where do we get, you know, decorating the hearth?
2: Okay. Well, I suppose we we, we, we talk about... Um... Christmas, the, the, the way we recognise it, the, the the version of it which is familiar in the context of being a, a British tradition. But so much of that which is rooted in, in our vision of a familiar Christmas has its roots in, in a much wider, predominantly European, but in part a wider global context as well. I mean, if we're taking, oh. we can focus on elements like the, the, the tree and the, the decoration of the tree. I mean, these are elements that are rooted in, if we say, an early Christian context for some aspects, but we can take this back much further as well. I mean, if we really want to push the boat out, we could take this back to Saturnalia in a Roman context, putting a sort of a pin Mm -hmm. into where the practice of a proto-Christmas tradition begins is tricky but i think we can say with some with some certainty that in terms of the evolution of this tradition we can certainly take it back into a roman context and probably take it back earlier as well but maybe we could think about those elements later on certainly for the influences that we have in a, in a british context the scandinavian and germanic narratives have been of i, th- I think probably greater influence than others in terms of, how do we describe it? I I suppose the sort of the paraphernalia of our Christmases in terms of the the decorative tree, the process of decoration, but even some of those more relatable figures. I mean, I imagine we'll talk about the evolution of the Santa Claus figure a little bit later on as well. But again, we can cast that into what we might broadly describe as a a pagan pre-Christian tradition as well, depending on how far you want to try and stretch these roots out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's nice to know that we... Personally, I'm always interested in the pagan and pre-Christian ideas that have become assumed within Christianity. That always fascinates me. I think there's a lot of people who are either lapsed Christians or, or fully atheists who just look at a lot of the Christmas paraphernalia as being purely Christian. And I don't think that's fair. I think a lot of it predates and Christianity.
2: Yeah. I mean, and again, this and this is why I sort of question, you know, how far do you want to, to stretch it? Saturnalia is... I suppose one of those points that we can say with confidence that there is a, I suppose, a formalising of the tradition. When I say formalising... Saturnalia itself is, is almost, in a Roman context, is almost certainly a borrowed tradition from what we might cast out into, say, a, an Iron Age context. We know that there is a set of four key dates in what you might loosely describe as the Celtic calendar. I say that word biting my tongue. There are lots of issues with, with, with the word Celtic. <laughs> Not issues that we probably have time to go into today. Um,
1: I will say you do a very good lecture on it.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, I... I confidently give you two hours on, on what, what are some of the problems with that word um, beyond my best behavior and I'll, I'll, I'll just run with the word for now for practicalities which is one of the reasons why the word Celtic is used but in the Celtic calendar we have four key dates and one of them falls on this this midwinter the solstice date of course we have the solstice creeping up on us uh, again the celebrations based around that transition that transformative time of year are established in that earlier what we'd say is just about a prehistoric context i think if if we can identify that there is cultural practice based around that time of year in an Iron Age context, we can probably start with a reasonable degree of confidence, start looking at ways to trace that back further. But as I say, in terms of formalising traditions and sort of the writing down of, this is the way you celebrate, this is what you acknowledge, this is why it's important, we could certainly cast into a Roman context. And then... Saturnalia itself begins to evolve into a Christian uh, commemoration as Roman society becomes Christianized. Roman society does what it had been doing so effectively throughout its existence, which is sort of picking and choosing the bits of religious practice from around the empire which it had created and subsuming it into their own culture. And so this happens with Christianity as well. And ultimately, the the sort of the calendrical observation that we have of okay this is christ's birth so we acknowledge and celebrate it at this particular time of year begins to replace the earlier saturnalia tradition which in of itself was almost certainly in part borrowed from an earlier let's say broadly european iron age pagan in quotes um tradition that that serves as a precursor to it as well so we we have this This sort of cycle, if you like, of reimagining this particular window of time. And of course, in, in a Western British, Western European context, it is something that is firmly rooted in Christianity today. But that is, I would suggest, something that is comparatively, relatively in its infancy. The... This, the, the cultural significance and celebrations based around this time of year have that much deeper chronology, which is something that we, we, we very easily overlook. You know, I know I've had conversations over the years with people who have said, well, you know, why do non-Christians celebrate Christmas? Well, because Christianity mm. doesn't have ownership of celebrating at this particular time of year. I think a lot, much wider and a much longer diverse range of faith-based interpretations have been utilising the time of year for that much longer chronological period.
0: Jenna?
1: Yeah, well I think most of it is just to kind of do with the fact of winter's really dull, let's do something (laughs) fun. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you're up in like more northern countries (laughs) (laughs) because you think the winter solstice has got to be just a couple of hours of daylight and no daylight in some places. You're going to come up with weird and imaginative things to do, I guess. Kind of.
2: mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so in terms of my broader background outside of history, I spent about 15, 20 years working in archaeology before making the, the the symbolic transition over to the over to wearing historians' hats. Um, <laughs> so, so I like to think I bring multiple perspectives to this. And, and certainly in, in our archaeological community, we are perhaps sometimes quite rightly accused of overly using the word ritual. We like to look for and seek out what we describe as ritual practice. And this can be manifest mm-hmm. in all sorts of... Quite imaginative, sometimes gory manifestations, um, and that 's valid and it 's right to explore that, but at the same time it 's always worth just like jenna Jen has, has cited it 's always worth sort of checking and holding ourselves back and, and just acknowledging the practical realities of the time in which these these customs and these celebrations take place. midwinter is is a short time of year in terms of the, the amount of hours of daylight that we have. In terms of the agricultural calendar, it is comparatively a quieter time of year. That's that's not to say there isn't lots of work to be done in an agricultural setting, but you don't have the hours of daylight with which to conduct all the work that you perhaps need to do. Mm. Um, There's also, I suppose, and you see this especially in rural, agricultural, pre-industrial communities, let's say, a practical shift in response to the weather, in the sense that in your spring and summer months where you have lots of daylight and what you'd hope is for better weather, the capacity to commune with others is, is profoundly greater. You are working together in the fields, you're working together at harvest time later on in the season as well. There's a, a, a sort of a communality that comes with agricultural rural practice, which is inevitably compromised by the, by the shift in the season. So, as things become darker, the days become shorter and of course, in terms of the the sort of activities that you're doing in an agricultural setting, the sort of the practical reasons for getting getting together and meeting up with people are are diminished significantly and so I think there is mm-hmm. there is validity in in asking, are these traditions happening because of deep spiritual reasonings because of the desire to maintain cultural tradition? Or is the real emphasis in this a legitimate way to excuse people getting together to meet up and see each other because otherwise the, the time of year just doesn't necessarily allow for it? And I, I, I do feel that is um, something that is underpinning so many of the cultural practices that play out at this time of year
0: that makes a lot of sense i feel like that also matches up with a very kind of core idea in modern attempts to tell different stories which is if we go back to something as fundamental to to literary traditions as beowulf and everyone is huddled in in the hall at winter time Around the fire and the kind of stories we tell. I mean, you know, in Victorian times we had a tradition of the horror story at Christmas, which of course has continued on, on in thanks to the, the BBC with radio and with television, and it's even and has come back again this century. And I know horror movie fans have a tradition of watching films at, at Christmas, but but in, the, in in recent years there's been a kind of particularly with the with, with, with the uptick in European horror films, there's been a, a, a sort of resurgence of looking at the Santa Claus figure and horrific figures around this time almost (laughs) telling us to go back inside and stay inside rather than be outdoors with our cars and our lights and our torches and things you know um and all our traveling and so that's sort of the other piece of the, the the other sort of big piece of the modern puzzle here is is the santa figure and i think you know, I find it as somebody who's fascinated in myth and legend and, and and horror films and so forth. I find it very, very hard to separate out the idea of something as jolly, particularly when it's commercially <laughs> uh, significant. You know, we have the Coca Cola tradition. I just wonder if you know. I just wonder how far back we can go with the you know with the notion of tricksters and or, or, or supernatural beings or people who deliver or, or you know impact. Mm. The community at that time huddled you know to, to coming together to shelter in, in the months when you can't really grow much
2: yeah I really like the idea of the the perhaps the more <laughs> malevolent uh, telling of the the Santa Claus the mm. Sinterklaas narrative as being a sort of a way to encourage people yes. to stay inside <laughs> just to stay safe for fear of what might be out there no I, I think that's a lovely idea
1: <laughs> maybe we should bring that back with COVID
0: (laughs) claws. Well, well, this is kind of the thing, isn't it? I mean, this year, it's this diffuse, you know, aerosolized disease rather than one big creature. It's it's, it's part of the reason I think people who do not think in certain ways are having a hard time getting hold of it. If you could make it a nice, easy bogeyman, I think everyone would be endorsing (laughs) it.
2: Yeah, but in, in terms of that, that longer chronology, again, you, you have to take, I suppose, some leaps of faith in terms of the chronology. I mentioned the the, the, the sort of the Wotan figure that, that plays out in Scandinavian cultures. That figure is sometimes associated with the Santa Claus figure based on visual aesthetics as much as anything else. I've seen arguments conflating the two as as, as, as that's potentially a starting point for the tradition. I I do feel it's tenuous, but I can see how you can make the argument in the sense that you have a a largely benevolent, ultimately large-bearded figure you can sort of see that I suppose mm. the 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 version that of course we're more familiar with is, is drawing its narrative out of the San Nicholas uh, or Saint Nicolas mm. um, tradition which we've we just had come up on the mm. calendar so that was that's commemorated back on on the sixth and again that's that's interesting in terms of British and I suppose European approaches to the season we tend to acknowledge the the sixth we, we, we tend to do a little bit of a gift-giving ceremony on the sixth by virtue of uh, you know half my family here is of European origin so so, so my ah, life comes okay. from a a Belgian and a a Luxembourgese uh, background where the acknowledgement of um, Saint-Nicolas and the traditions associated with it continue to be important today and the reason I I say the traditions based around it is I think in terms of those perhaps more malevolent figures the Saint-Nicolas tradition is I think fascinating both both historically and contemporary primarily Mm. for the long standing and still practice practice uh, sorry practice practice <laughs> uh, practice tradition of of Sparta pete uh, I, I, i'm not sure if that's that's one you you guys have come across uh, at all
0: no i don't think so although it sounds vaguely familiar
2: yeah so i mean the the Sparta pete narrative is oh is it's it, the it,
0: the the dutch oh Sorry, because I, I I had a Dutch boy in one of my classes a few years ago for GCSE, and we had to do speeches, this is English, and he did a speech on this black-faced tradition yeah. in Holland, is that it?
2: Is... That, that's the tradition, yeah. That... I
0: mean, I'm simplifying, obviously, it's, it's not that, it's...
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, so, so this is broad spread across much of Europe. And you, you see manifestations of it in a Germanic context as well. So, yes, so we have in the narrative of Saint-Nicolas, we have Pete, which is, sort of basically translates as Black Pete. I and mean, it's it's unsurprisingly a fairly uncomfortable narrative for many people today, because in some tellings of the tradition, the Black Pete character is a sort of an assistant, and aide to Saint-Nicolas, but he is more closely associated with the narrative of, I suppose, balancing out the good of Saint-Nicolas with punishments and I know, I know we we're probably going to talk about coal at some stage um, <laughs> w- w- probably one of the, uh, the more familiar narratives in a European context of Pete is that this is the figure who is responsible for capturing and gathering up children who have been poorly behaved, evil, malevolent, whatever it might be, and carrying them away in coal sacks. An extension of that narrative sees uh, Swartepie then then literally painting the children more often than not to be black as well, and wow. then they act as a subservient role um, to Santa Claus himself. Now, of course. I talk about this in in the context of a Belgian cultural context, and of course Belgium has a, you know, I'm I'm not finger-pointing at Belgium, you know, if (laughs) if it's a European nation, it's got a difficult colonial narrative to deal with. Um, Yeah,
0: no, but thinking of the Congo and... (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear!
2: So so of course that's where the particular narrative is in in, in terms of um, the relationship between Belgium and the Congo, and I think it's It seems inescapable the the development of this narrative where you have the large domineering prominent but also ultimately celebrated large white figure who has a and, and then the the, the beat individual. Often becomes a malevolent figure. It sort of takes on a sort of a, a almost a proto-Crampus role mm. in in some respects. But that you have a black figure who is in that subservient, supportive, but also sometimes malevolent, punishing. Ultimately, a, a narrative of negativity mm. Mm. is is quite striking. I think. I think that needs to be considered. In that colonial context, and in, in terms of the relationship between the two, but really, if you want to make certain things even more uncomfortable, <laughs> if you are looking for a, a traditional origin point for things like helper elves, yep, there's an argument to be made that it links into that sort of narrative. Wow.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this just you know you just you are you are validating all of my most like my deepest sort of thoughts as a as a person who you know colonialism is essential to explain who i am and how i'm here you know it's, it's one of those things where i always have some very dark concerns about these sorts of traditions mm. and you're just validating that right there <laughs> yeah. i mean don't get me started on what pokemon is training children to think about gen- uh, genetics and, and how we rear creatures and all that we'll, we'll go you know but, but that's fascinating I, I i did always wonder about the whole production line and and to be fair i'll mm. give roald Dahl some credit as a kid seeing Charlie the chocolate factory is exactly what made me start to think about the christmas side (laughs) and go "Hmm."
1: (laughs) i will say that with santa claus's workshop that didn't really come in until he hit america really and it's it's that kind of makes me laugh with the fact of he got industrialized in america but that makes sense
0: that makes a lot of sense i can see exactly (laughs) why so, so, so the victorians didn't do it you're saying the americans did it that's quite interesting
1: yeah, and also mm-hmm. the Americans gave him Mr's Claws as well. Oh, well, of and... course, we
0: can't have a single man out there doing this, can we? <laughs> no. <laughs> that raises some...
1: Visiting he- <laughs> kids in the middle of the yes, night. Yes,
0: I mean, we don't want the single ladies waiting up for him, do we? <laughs> I mean, <this> is just.
1: <laughs> Santa I... baby. Yeah,
0: this is just... It's... Oh, wow. Yes, no, this is fascinating, so you were saying so the the elves was being disturbing that that's quite interesting, but of course, elves themselves are an older concept and have their own history and and you know that, there's loads of levels to that as well i mean it's interesting that it's reinterpreted as elves that in itself is as interesting as the idea of oh he needs to have a production line because we now we understand this is how it would take to how long it would take to make things
2: certainly and and again i i, I should stress you, you you can make an argument for for, for connecting the the, the Smarter pete narrative to the mm-hmm. elves narrative there are lots of interpretive takes that, that you could explore which get you to the the sort of the end point of these little helpers mm-hmm. Operating with with Santa Claus, I think that's it's a striking narrative. You're quite right. I mean, in terms of the. The, the sort of the elves or the fairy like figures that we have, and you know, this this is rooted in British mythology and folklore mm-hmm. as well. Elves and fairies are very different in a British folkloric mm-hmm. setting to the, the sort of the Tinkerbell mm-hmm. uh, yes, narrative. Exactly. <laughs> um, that, 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 yes. That, that, that is a, a, a far more palatable version than, <laughs> than the actual elves and fairies yes. that we have uh, in a British folkloric tradition, which. Um, more often than not would in terms of size and stature not be too dissimilar to sort of a large child if you like and their physical appearance would it, many of them are sort of verging on the grotesque these are not necessarily approachable little figures these are sort of semi-adult creatures that are, are sort of split between both positive and mm. negative lines the the, the, mm. the elven fairy tradition um can be manifest in supportive figures but i suppose the consistency is so long as you're treating them well you know you don't want to cross fairies mm. and elves in a british folklore mm. tradition because if you cross them more often than not you're going to receive extreme yes. punishments yes. which which on occasions result in the yes. loss of life or at least dramatic shortening of life yeah. um but if you are say for instance putting out Little bits of food, maybe a little bit of milk out for them. Um, then they may well be serving to assist you um, in producing clothing or shoes. I and mean, we we see this in, in in British folklore and mythology. So th- there is a much wider cultural precedent for those sorts of smaller in stature figures. Serving in, in, a, I, was, I was going to say predominantly helpful. That that would be misleading. They're, mm. they're not predominantly helpful. Pre- pre- predominantly, they're if you use the phrase, a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> but, but, but but they can be quite helpful um, if you hmm. treat them well. Which I suppose could. Be taken as a precursor to the, the sort of the good bad behaviour that, that that we see manifest in in the Christmas tradition of of the way in which you should act in order to secure favours or presents. Okay, presence. well
0: that, that that brings me that was the next thing I was going to move on to was this idea of of presents and gift giving. Oh, Go before on.
1: we move on to that, I was actually going to mention one thing that is talked about in autism circles is that the theory that changelings which are children that are kidnapped by mm. fairies and then replaced with, like, a mm-hmm. different child, mm-hmm. it might be an explanation for neurodiversity yes. and Down syndrome and stuff yes, like I've that as that well. Yes, I've seen that theory. I find really that absolutely
0: fascinating. I love the idea mm. that we may have found, you know, that they may be a mythologized way to to explain or, or to recount something we now understand in a biological context. That fascinates mm. me. I mean, I, I, I don't know mm. how much actual evidence we can find for it but I like, I like i think yeah as as you were saying earlier david about a different topic i think that, that i can see how an argument can be made but for something like that But if we come back to the yeah i mean coming back to the the idea of gift giving gifting versus uh, but also the morality thing i mean this is the other thing that fascinates me is in the dark of winter the idea that we are all going to tell children or adults for that matter you know morality plays why is that such an important part of getting through this season you know and why is it so and why is it, why does it become so important as a method of because it seems to be quite a crucial way of passing on certain moral systems to children. Or at least instilling some notions of moral systems that you may not already have done as a parent in them. Which, which is something I find, as I've got older, I find increasingly odd and suspect. Sorry, it's just <laughs> one of the things. Um, I, I, I mean, where, where, how, where, where, where do you see the... You've obviously mentioned it several times of as, alongside the other ideas we've talked about. But where would you say is the the point at which this becomes kind of quite more formalized as part of the tradition?
2: Okay. Yeah. Two things. It just very quickly yes, indulge me and go back to to the point the general was made, just to okay. reinforce that that, that earlier narrative we mentioned about the, the sort of the pagan Celtic calendar, if you like, um, that that point of transition and transformation um is is critical to to those four key dates of the celtic calendar Um, and it's also seen as a point in which the the sort of the boundary between the the sort of the real world if you like the physical world and the spiritual world is at its thinnest if you like Mm. so it's a point at which individuals can i suppose move between the the sort of the planes of existence if you like and so i really like that idea of the 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 transformation and the transition, almost the swapping as well. I, I think that you, you can ground that in in, in a wider yeah. tradition. Certainly, when it comes on to things like the gift giving process and 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 that idea of the the formalising of it. Obviously, we have written in a Christian tradition that there is that gift giving process that takes place. But in terms of, I suppose, it becoming more. How do we describe it? More ritualised in a way that we would recognise it. The temptation might be to cast it into a, into a much more recent sort of capitalist context, and that would not be completely unfair. But I think we we probably really start seeing it take on that formal aesthetic as we get. I mean, certainly nineteenth century, maybe very end of the eighteenth century as well. The the process of of gift giving as as a regular feature of certainly a Western European tradition that's really I don't argue where it becomes a, a sort of a critical component of the narrative and again, in terms of the, the sorts of gifts that are being given to this day, I will still expect to get a stocking sent in the post from my parents, which has an orange wow. in it <laughs> it is yes. a luxury yes. good in the context of where that yes, tradition absolutely. comes from so relatively speaking there would have been some emphasis on the status of the gift that is given and i suppose that has continued through into a present day context where yes the, the, the emphasis on both not so much quality but quantity and size yeah. impact value of the gift i suppose <laughs> is, is 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 something that we we see today but i would say that i know we often look to i suppose be critical of the of the more commercial form of Christmas today. But we are dealing with a, a tradition that evolves. I mean, th- th- this is one of the things with, with cultural practice. It's very rarely is this something that stays static. It is always subject to evolution and change. It's, you know, in, in terms of the intangible forms of heritage that I'm talking about, When we when we talk about protecting those forms of heritage, we use this phrase of safeguarding because safeguarding looks to protect... A tradition from too rapid a form of change or protecting it from let's say rapid impacts of tourism for instance we we explore the way in which traditions evolve naturally and the way in which traditions can sometimes be forcibly changed into something that they aren't i would argue just about i would just about argue that the transition of the christmas tradition into this massive commercial behemoth is part of a, of a natural evolution. Ooh, okay. um, and it, again, you, you're seeing this play out pr- predominantly through the 19th century. Jenna was mentioning North America as being the sort of the starting point for the the Santa Claus figure that we would recognise. Where we first see that, you may be familiar with this narrative in terms of the the, ultimate, the Scottish figure of James Edgar. I'm not sure if you've come across him.
0: No, I have no. not.
2: James Edgar holds or held he's been dead for some time now um (laughs) held the claim um for being the first um, sort of dress-up store santa oh Um, whereabouts was he or want to say massachusetts Mm. you'll have to fact check me on that one okay the exact location has popped out of my head but wherever he was located he originates from scotland comes over to the states establishes a sort of a general store and at some point in, in the store's life, he decides to dress up as Santa. Now, that figure is one that is established in terms of a visual aesthetic. You know, it, it's, it's going through a slow evolution during the 19th century, but it is a recognisable figure uh, by that stage. And so he takes it upon himself every year to dress up and walk around the store but also walk around the local community and, and engaging people as if he was the Santa Claus figure. And that's where the tradition starts. So, so right. it, it crops up with, with a Scottish shop owner who seems to and, and again, how much this is a, a positive framing of the story or not is you know, per- perhaps open to interpretation. But it would appear that he's doing this more out of altruistic motivations than commercial ones. Um, he's obviously associated with a shop, and that's benefiting the shop. It's I think it's well established that the his living, walking Santa has a big draw and lots of people come into the community and his shop because of mm. it. So it's an inevitable commercial connection there. But, but as an individual, he's, he's often talked about as being quite altruistic, positive towards his community. At least in part, it seems to be something that he's doing to entertain and to um bring without being too cliched about it bring joy to the community Mm. but when he starts that and this is towards i think i think this is the latter decades of the 19th century others of course see the positive impact that having a santa in store has in terms of bringing people through the door and the process of replication starts but arguably that's how traditions and customs play out people yes. are introduced to the cultural practice and they think oh that's that's that looks fun or that looks interesting or that looks positive let's take it on ourselves we might adapt it we might change it a little but we'll we'll replicate that which we've seen and so the store the sort of the in-store santa i would suggest becomes a cultural practice and one that evolves relatively speaking, quite naturally, Mm. rather than lots of stores simultaneously saying, ah, if we have a store-bought Santa, that will have a commercial impact, let's all do it. Mm. I think you have a more, comparatively speaking, natural process that that leads us to to where we are today.
1: Mm. And it sort of makes Mm. sense for the Santa Claus experience or Father Christmas experience to be in places like shopping centres, because they're places (laughs) of gathering,
2: yeah. So. Yeah, the communal spaces, yeah. which which again links back to what we said at the very start. It's yes a part of the the cultural practices that play out at this time mm. of year, mm. and of course the the, the emphasis has, has shifted into a more commercial narrative. But inevitably, the emphasis on community is still there. It, it's just instead of coming together to sing songs or to eat together we come together to shop <laughs> but, but, that, that's become the cultural practice but but i would still say it's,
1: commercialism it,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah well it's um i've been saying throughout throughout this last year commercialism and capitalism are are by far and away the most robust isms when, when, when people were, were were saying covid's going to change everything i was thinking well we're in a capitalist era and capitalism is pretty robust i'm pretty sure long term, it's not going to change everything because capitalism is going to be doing everything possible to get us to go back to what is normal, just because of the strength of that particular ism. But again, probably a broadcast for for, for another time.
0: (laughs) Um, So we've covered trees, gifting, we've covered the time of year, we've covered Dipped in on the tradition of Santa himself. I would like, just for a moment, to bring this back to. Well, since we've talked about modernised traditions, this 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 needs to be to something I was actually going to save till later in the program, but I think I'll bring up now because it connects nicely. So you're talking about how traditions evolve, traditions establish. Uh, given that we founded this podcast to look at movies and the historical content in hmm. movies. It has really struck me this year that on what we call film Twitter and film Facebook, so you know people who specifically spend most of their time talking about film or work in film or work in things that are related to film. There's huge discussions about what uh, what qualifies as a film you watch at this time of year, which obviously then starts <laughs> to show you what people consider this time of year to be about. But also, one of the things I noticed is that there there is not just the, so there's the horror movie traditions so you have things like you mentioned Sin as a tradition and then there's an actual Dutch movie from horror maker Dick Maas called Sint specifically and then we have rare exports from Scandinavia and we have Krampus more recently and this
1: so might before cr- uh Christmas counted as a horror movie
0: only for us cuz we had to watch it mm. but um <laughs> uh but but you, you know we it, this seems to have come about partly in opposition to the saccharin Hallmark channel TV movie, feel good rom com, look little American town, community type thing, and I find and that's a fairly straightforward evolution. You know, this is a fairly binary. Oh, look, here's one thing we're going to react against, but the other thing I I do find interesting is almost like an assertion by European filmmakers of their traditions directly to say, no, this is what we have in our country. You know, let let me show you that in this particular way. But it also but it also makes me think about The other thing that for a certain generation is quite popular, which is the Home Alone films and this idea of the the child under siege. You know, I find that really intriguing that people want to watch films like that at Christmas, given everything we've said today. You know, I mean, there's a French film which is being gradually re. Uh, its reputation is being restored at the moment, which predates Home Alone, which is widely seen as probably what inspired John Hughes to write his version and, and soften it for America. Because the French one is much more of an, a proper nasty thriller as it gets into this phase of the home invasion. But it's called Transiccans Code Noël, which refers to the pre-internet Minitel system that the French had which was for you could which was like a C Fax through the phone system and Tonsi Scans thirty six one five was the code you typed to get your your Minitel, your Cinefax C Fax style data to come through and, and then you do Père Noël, Father's Christmas and it's a, it's a specifically about a kid who loves Christmas, loves everything about Christmas, loves survival films, loves action movies, and he is at home alone when Andres de Santa attempts to break into the house. And I just find it fascinating that someone comes up with this idea, and it then gets transferred to the states, and it then becomes this mini franchise that then becomes influential itself. You know, recalls a slapstick comedy. But but again, it's just these ideas of violence in film and and survival, and putting that around. Christmas. I mean, Shane Black's thrillers. Mm. Every single one of them, famously, barring maybe one, happens at Christmas. Lethal Weapon happens at Christmas, and The Last Boy Scout happens just in the run-up to it, and The Long Kiss Goodnight happens to it, and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang happens to it. You know, and Iron Man Three, you know, he, he <laughs> always, you know, it's a known thing of his career that he deliberately sets them at that point and puts a kid in peril in them because he thinks this is an actually an important way of defining the American hero in and the American thriller. And I just find that fascinating that this has all come about, you know, almost... Is it actually in antithesis to the saccharine-friendly, cosy tradition, or is it actually... Do we see something older here? you know, coming out.
2: So if I may, I was going to introduce you to a tradition that I've been working on for several years. Uh, it's, it's a tradition that is quite specific to Wales and predominantly West Wales, and that's the tradition of the Mary Lloyd. Um, Yay! which I, 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 thought, I thought Jenna might remember this one. Um, th- th- this might be new for yourself, here. I'm not sure, not sure if you've come across the the dead horse skull tradition of West Wales.
0: I'm vaguely aware of it mostly because as a teenager I was that fascinated with Celtic myth and well, thanks to Robin O'Shea. <laughs> so the and the hunter image and the, and the wild hunt and the skull image has always been something that fascinates me and the various ways in which it keeps turning Excellent.
2: up. Well, well glad you have the familiarity and you know I'm describing this as a West Wales tradition that there are versions of horse and animal head traditions that run through much of the British Isles but also through uh, Western and Central Europe as well. So so what the origin point for this This thing is questionable, ultimately. The bottom line of this, in in terms of historians and archaeologists, we don't really have a a satisfactory answer as to where the tradition emerges from. But in terms of how it's manifest, on old Christmas Day, so this is falling on the the 6th of uh, January, the practice would be that... A horse's skull, usually bleached white in preparation, would be decorated with fabric and ribbons. There'll be a stick put up in the skull and it would be carried around through a sort of a a procession around local communities, usually with a small party of what tended to be exclusively men. And the idea would be to engage in singing competitions from house to house. And and this (laughs) this sort of links back to what we said at the very start about communal traditions in the darker periods of midwinter. But the Mary Lloyd is inherently malevolent in appearance i mean this this is this is quite literally the skull of a deceased horse which is being taken to every home within uh, a, within a community you you have documentary accounts from 19th century sources in west wales which actually re- report um, people dying of fright um, from having this uh, dead horse effigy appear at the window the, this is not something that automatically screams Christmas and, and, and Yuletide joy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it is a wonderfully bizarre tradition. In, in terms of pinpointing the why behind this, I mean, the, the why behind the Mary Lloyd, the why behind things like Krampus, that is something that I used the phrase before. I don't think we really have a satisfactory explanation for <laughs> it. <laughs> um, could it
1: just be Wales? <laughs> well, it's...
2: Wales and the West Country, because it's quite popular in places like Cornwall and Devon as well. So of course, there are historical or cultural links between the two. But but I do stress, you, you go out to... I know in Poland, there's a midwinter tradition that's based around... I think it's a goat skull. Ah. Um, and again, around about this time of year, we we see... A number of iterations if you like of a similar sort of, tra- of tradition that's not to say that they all have the same root it's entirely possible that that they have evolved independently of each other but i do think it's incredibly striking that you have what is inherently a macabre very scary tradition practiced out on what is old christmas day now what, what would have been christmas day perhaps when this tradition was originally practiced mm. Yeah, I mean, in answer to the question here about about what's the why behind this, I, I, I'd i be damned if I could give a, <laughs> <laughs> give a coherent answer. It, it is very strange. There is the possibility that it links back to this morality narrative that comes out not just in a Christian practice of worship, but most, you know, most organised forms of faith uh, and practice do have a morality narrative underpinning them, encouraging certain behaviours and indicating... Consequences or punishments for behaviour that doesn't fit the accepted norm, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So there is that possibility that, that runs through that. But the manifestation of it is interesting. If I might just come back to... We, we mentioned coal earlier in a negative context, um, both in terms of a, perhaps a racial narrative, but also coal being given as a punishment present. Mm-hmm. Again, in, in, a, in, in particular a West Whalian context, Christmas Day itself was was never, historically speaking, the big celebration day. It was marked as a starting point of a season of celebrations that went through to New Year's. Ah. And on New Year's Day in particular, that was your, your, your big moment of commemoration. Right. And there, the practice of giving coal as a gift was actually seen as a very positive thing. And, and the, the, I, I know there are some people who still put a glittery ribbon around a piece of coal and give that as oh, a New that's really Year's cool. present. Okay. Because of the symbolic impact of it, it is associated with the hearth, it is associated with warmth, and that in turn gives a suggestion of security, sanctuary, if you like. Coal can be read as an incredibly uh, positive, supportive gift. Oh, okay. And certainly in that West Whalian tradition, with the shift of emphasis onto New Year's Day as opposed to Christmas Day, see that as a as an almost celebratory, positive thing to be the recipient of.
0: Hmm. Okay. And so to sort of why, because I bring this this episode to a close. Then, obviously, I don't think traditions. I mean, traditions obviously don't end. They evolve. They change. They mutate. And how we perceive them. How we perceive things now obviously then affects how we think things may or may not have taken place in the past. So I do, you know, coming back to, to sort of the movie world, I would be fascinated. I don't think I've ever seen a historically set movie that really takes advantage of what we know about particular Christmas traditions at a particular time to uh, dramatise that for us. And I think that would be really amazing to see in the future, like as, as the traditions you've just described. I'm not sure how that will happen, but it would be interesting <laughs> to see.
2: I think we're due a Christmas horror movie based around Mary lou I want it yes, so bad. I think it's, it's about time.
0: Yes. <laughs> And and to be honest, uh, I know enough people in the British horror movie community I might try and suggest it to somebody at this rate. Um certainly this,
1: this malevolent horse skull who comes and steals your body. Well the beer. thing is what's interesting is that in a
0: COVID situation you 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 want as little people as possible on set. That would make for a very practical you know, that's a good plot line. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Yeah, so um I can see that working. But but I think the other thing moving forward is, is also the notion that we ourselves are now going to what what do we do as what do we see as traditions I mean, you know, as as times get harder and, and there's there's sort of more people and less money, and, and and also we have to consider the the ecology and the environmental impact of production of materials and things. You know, are we? You know, I I already know people for whom we are going back to more practical gifts. You know, for whom mm-hmm. you know the, the the piece of clothing that lasts. It's not quite coal, but it is. You know, we're going back to the coal and the orange and the valuation of what it is you're giving you know I'm pretty sure I don't think I've seen it directly applied to me but I'm pretty sure that there are people out there who are giving you know here is here is a here's my crystal card and a voucher for two hours of my you know, whatever my particular skill is next year for free kind of thing. You know, I think we're in that kind of we're returning for at some levels we're getting back down to barter. Do you think
1: I can send out to my family Christmas cards with two hours of historian. Well, I mean, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a,
0: you know two hours of accurate historian as opposed to what they usually tell us. Uh, I, I know they don't listen. to...
1: Apparently, I don't know history. According to yeah, some. well,
0: they yeah look who's talk. They, look who is telling you that. I, but but I think it's interesting that we're going to. I, I feel like we still haven't tapped the the sense of uh, I, I you know there's 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 a lot of medieval historians I follow who are who, are, who, who this year has been transformative because we have considered the intellectual co- no, co- side of living through the plague, mm. and I do wonder whether we're going to see some shifts in our traditions, not not you know over the next couple of years.
2: Something else to throw into that mix as well. Mm. I'm not sure if Jenna was, was, was still with me at the university when I did um, a special one-off session on nationalist Christmases. Oh. Um, you I don't with think you? I
1: was.
2: No, you you might have missed that by one year, I think. Oh. Um,
1: so th- so it just meant because I, I kept repeating fascism, not nationalism. You, yes,
2: you did come back to fascism <laughs> a few times, yeah. <laughs> so in, in, in just in light of what you're saying about how... The, the Christmas practice that we are engaging with today might well evolve in relation to circumstance. Mm. I'm fascinated to see whether we'll see the same thing happen from a more political perspective. Ah. Um, you know, we are moving into the, into the Brexit period, however, that's going to be manifest if you cast minds back to the early part of the 20th century and maybe maybe just towards the end of the 19th as well but in, in particular first first couple of decades of the 20th century we saw a really striking politicization of christmas mm-hmm in particular around the Christmas pudding. Um, We mentioned uh, colonialism already, and the the Christmas pudding is often held up uh, in a British context as you get towards the, uh, I mean, especially latter part of the 19th century going into the 20th. The the sort of the Christmas or the plum pudding is actually described as an empire, Pudding. Oh. It's an empire Christmas pudding by virtue of that which you need ingredient wise to make it. Um, oh. So you can sort of celebrate the empire or celebrate the colonies by virtue of buying or making um, a, a Christmas pudding. Which, which I think is, is, is interesting. But you also, as you go into a war context, you see the plum or the Christmas pudding being used as sort of representative of the nation. So you'll see depictions of um, the, the nationalist John Bull figure defending the old plum pudding you you, you'll see postcards i mean christmas postcards comedy satirical postcards where i think i think one of my favorite ones is described as the 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 kaiser gets his christmas pudding um where where a christmas pudding is being fired out of a cannon (laughs) and it's hitting the kaiser in the back of the head Um, this overt politicizing and and essentially manipulation of christmas to to push forward a very strong nationalist narrative Mm. and i think You know, whatever your take on nationalism, I think we've certainly seen that becoming a more vocal part of our political landscape in recent years. Well, there's Um,
1: always the thing about the war on
2: Christmas. There's that narrative, certainly. Um, That strikes me as, I think, one of the the interesting things to sort of look out for in terms of how this tradition evolves. Mm. Uh, what What our first Christmas outside of Europe or outside the European Union is going to look like in terms of tone and focus, what sort of government messages might be sent out to to pitch us to perhaps shop a certain way or to support certain (laughs) things in the context of a potentially heightened nationalist Christmas going into 2021, oh, um, I, I think that could be fascinating.
0: Yeah, depressing as well, though. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yes.
2: from 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 the historian's perspective, yes, it, yes. it, it, it could be fascinating. Of course, yes. um,
1: I will just say, as a like gentler changing of tradition, when I was a child, all my presents came from Santa Claus. Now, in my mm-hmm. house, half the presents come from Santa and half come from us. So, And I've actually spoken to a lot of parents who are doing it like that because it's kind of reinforcing, look, mum and dad are still giving you presents. Mm-hmm. So, And it's also trying to get rid of the, but why did so-and-so get an Xbox from Santa <laughs> and I got a doll? Mm. Kind of thing. Mm. Well, yeah, mm. it's it's a very interesting small changing of tradition, which I find very interesting. Mm. No. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think
0: I think this is going to be kind of you know it, it will be fascinating if we're still doing this podcast in a couple of years to to come back David and have a chat with you and see yeah, where we so are, so um,
2: see what Christmas is like. Yeah, yeah so. <laughs> and, then,
0: and 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 also see if if uh, see if we can access discussions about other traditions. Personally, I've never done enough research about. One of the things that I will just briefly touch on the fact that as somebody who's originally born in the Southern Hemisphere, the thing that always struck us as bizarre, if you went back when I went back when I was older and you were there for Christmas, is to to try and follow British traditions in the bright hot sun and go and have a barbecue, you know. and, and it's a very odd thing, and it makes you question <laughs> and look at the traditions you've inherited from colonialism. And I would actually be quite interested to dig into what. Southern hemisphere based cultures did pre colonialism mm. for their winters. I think there's a whole set of traditions there I'm completely unaware of and I'd like to find out more.
2: Um, yeah, and, and exploring the way in which those transplanted traditions are adapting and evolving to to the respective climates and and, and cultural forces that are, that are in play in those environments. Yes, yeah, I, I think mean, on, fascinating. I mean,
0: on the simplest level, my mum. As like, well, we, we we moved to England when I was a very small child, and my mum has always made curry and roast at Christmas. <laughs> um, we've always had both, and um, when but when I was in South Africa for for a, a Christmas period one time, we we had bar- we went out for a barbecue. We, <laughs> we stood out in the sun with cans of drink and and you know steaks smoking on the barbecue. And you just think, wow, this is a whole different way of doing Christmas. Anyway, on that note, on that pleasant, very pleasant note, thinking about steaks, <laughs> you're making me hungry. <laughs> we'll bring this episode to an end. Is there anything you would like to push or promote, David, or anywhere people can find you online? Sort
2: of have a, have a variety of obscure social media platforms um, <laughs> you, 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 you can find me and I'm very happy to discuss uh, these themes further on, uh, on, on Twitter I have the handle of Kasuta which, which ah, probably requires okay. some explanation I, I, I conducted some research uh, out in Greenland about, or well, probably about ten years ago, uh, I was really taken by, by both the culture and the language. Kasuta, which, um, if, if I'm hopefully spelling this right, K A S W W T A, is essentially the Greenlandic word for for cheers or good health. Um, oh. so, so, you can find me there.
0: <laughs> Excellent, terrific!
1: And you have a Pokemon Twitter as well. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I have a, a separate Pokemon Twitter, and, and I've, I've been dabbling with YouTube um, this year. Yes, uh, you as, have. As well. It's amazing. Yeah, It's, 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 it's Fun. funny. I, I, I don't get that much time to listen to the radio, but I did catch, um, just by chance, Rick Astley chatting about his uh-huh. new song um, on the radio yesterday. And I mention it only because he was saying that in the context of COVID, lots of people, because nothing is normal, have been trying things that are not normal for them. So, so I, I tried that this year. I, I, I've been playing around with with developing a YouTube channel, and it's ridiculous. It's oh. it's it's an it's an unhealthy hybrid of history and Pokemon. It's it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's probably unique, and I think that's probably the only thing that, that, that it's got going for it. But it does exist, so I'm I'm, I'm there as well.
1: And they are your Excellent. actual classes as well.
2: <laughs> they, they, they are my actual classes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Excellent, Jenna. Where can people find you? So you,
1: you can find me at Nadesco Kitty on Twitter otherwise you can find me sometimes on the bunkers in a blog writing about different things right now um you can also find me to do with the historical association as well so support your local one I think that's everything there's lots
0: that that yeah Yeah. fantastic (laughs) uh people can find me at 48 consultancy on twitter facebook instagram we also run a twitter and facebook page for this podcast which is at real history underscore uk or I think the Facebook one is without the underscore, isn't it, Jenna? Yeah. Um and then, and feel free to talk to us about anything there. Any suggestions for future episodes? Any comments on older episodes? wherever you're listening to them, be it at Bunkerzilla or on with your podcast platform of choice, please feel free to like, subscribe, leave us comments, let us know what you think, uh, and we will uh, pay attention, take on board, and um, yeah, move forward into 2021. <laughs> oh my ah! word!
1: Um, I just right. remembered that me and mm-hmm. our previous guest Sabrina were on the Bunker Quiz Smash. As well as a team, and I'm not going to say where we came, but yeah, it was very fun. So that's on Twitch. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah.
0: Oh, Mm -hmm. is that on Twitch as well? Excellent. Fantastic. All right, folks, you can look out for that. All right, then. Thank you very much, and um, we will see you all next time. Merry Christmas.
2: Good Merry Christmas. Yes. Merry Christmas. Goodbye.